This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Steven. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that the show will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Hi, how are y'all doing today? What are y'all drinking? I'm doing good. I'm drinking a hazy IPA. I just finished mm-hmm. drinking a cappuccino. So I got the caffeine, now the alcohol. Whoa, <laughs> I think I should be good. Whoa. In that order. That's good. There you go. Hey, Barista you, Josh. Barista Josh, would you just accurately describe what a cappuccino is? Because I feel like a lot of people um, are picturing Starbucks cappuccino, and that's definitely not it. Well, to be honest, there's some confusion in the industry. Some people have different definitions, but generally, it's a smaller coffee drink, usually about six to eight ounces, and with slightly foamier milk. Mm. But it's not mm-hmm. just like a bunch of fluffy, airy foam like Starbucks. Right. Would yeah, make it's not. You. It's not just like. It's not like you've uh, whipped creamed <laughs> yeah. the milk. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> right I on. mean, some somebody might do that, but that's not how it should be. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you for this. I yeah. raise a glass and raise a cup because I am, I'm drinking my very last Storyville K-Cup right now <gasps> that I got oh. from my friend Josh. Cheers. I'll drink to that, bro. It has served Toast. me well. Yes. All 32 of those K-Cups have been cherished and loved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. So here we are. Yourself, Emily, what are you drinking? I'm consuming probably the biggest thing of Sprite ever. I went to Arby's after our church conference and I just, I was like, oh, Sprite sounds so good. And when they said medium, I didn't realize their medium is like the size of an extra large. Yeah. I love that. So it only makes me wonder what a large looks like. Fast food sizes Uh, are terrifying when it comes to drinks now. It's horrible. So yeah, that's what I'm consuming. Good old Sprite. So that's kind of like on Parks and Rec when they're like, we have a child size. (laughs) Oh, how, how many ounces is it? It's uh. It's about 118. It's about the size of a small child. Yeah. It's child size. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that is what I'm consuming right now. Well, so thank you for joining today. It's so interesting where, you know, we were talking about a couple episodes ago, I think we were, we briefly had mentioned the liturgical calendar. And I'm so fascinated by this subject because one, we're entering into one of the biggest parts of the liturgical year or the Christian mm. year mm-hmm. known as Advent. Uh, And for those of you who don't know what Advent is, we'll get into that later. But I wanted to start by asking the both of you, what is your knowledge of the liturgical calendar? And did you ever experience using the liturgical calendar, whether in your church or in your religious contexts? Because not everyone has. And so I want to know where our basis is before we move forward. Well, I'll go first. Um, I grew up in. Uh, a Baptist church, and we didn't really conceptualize of the like yearly calendar. I do remember talking about Advent, like the four weeks of Christmas. Um, but beyond lighting candles once a week, there wasn't much emphasis otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. My church did do a Good Friday service for Easter, um, but other than that, there wasn't much uh, Holy Week emphasis. 
But beyond that, my understanding of the yearly liturgical calendar is pretty child-sized, honestly. Um, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the Episcopal Church that I was attending pre-COVID, um, after one service, the rector took me and another young woman into the children's room to show us the children's liturgical calendar because like neither of us knew what she was talking about and like how like there's different colors for different seasons but honestly i don't even remember any of that right that's how little my understanding of it is that sounds so advent the word was never used in my church like for us it was just it was all about christmas eve and christmas uh i remember my first introduction to advent was i was young and i was really into lego and my parents bought me a Lego advent calendar where it's like every morning of advent, you would open a little box and you'd get another little minifigure and little additional Lego pieces. Um, oh, cool. I made it, I made it like four days and then I just opened them all because I wanted the Legos. <laughs> Steven, self-discipline. So, well, yeah, I mean, 11-year-old, 11-year-old? Yeah, I think that was about right. Steven just did not want to wait for it. but also. That that age, Stephen had no understanding of the significance of Advent and doing doing the daily check in with the with with the calendar. So I just it was a toy to me. Yeah, and I mean for Easter, I remember a good number of Good Friday services, and I remember passing mentions of Holy Week, as in Palm Sunday and Ash Wednesday, but mm-hmm. never practiced anything around it. Wow. Oh, that's so and um, set aside pastor Emily. Yeah. I'm imagining little like elementary school Emily. I was taught about the liturgical calendar at a pretty early age and maybe it's cuz I'm a Methodist and we are very proud of using a kind of cyclical calendar each mm-hmm. year that's yep. consistent and we love Methods, of course. That's why we are called Methodists. It's in the name, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's in the name. It's a given. Um, so now that I know a little bit about where you all are coming from, I want to leave the floor open to see what is it that you want to know about the liturgical calendar? What are things that you don't understand about the liturgical calendar? Because I don't want it to turn into a, I'm just going to sit and talk for the whole thing. I want to know what is it like are you fascinated by the idea of a liturgical calendar what are what are things coming to mind Okay well I already have a couple things actually if you don't Perfect, mind Perfect please um, cuz like I'm kind of aware of like some of the things like Stephen mentioned an advent calendar or like I went to uh, my first Ash Wednesday service last year but to be honest I don't know where those things come from Oh like why like Maybe we have to like separate those out. Like, why do we celebrate Advent? Like, what does Advent mean? I only know a little bit about that. Or like, where did these, where did we start to pick up some of these traditions along the way? Sure. Um, So actually, let's start with Advent because it's right around the corner. And Advent, and it depends on what church you're part of, but usually Advent sort of commemorates like the start of the liturgical year. And again, it's different for each church. So Advent actually comes from the Latin word um, adventus, which means arrival or coming. And Mm. it's considered like the arrival and the coming of Jesus's birth. And so we have this preparation where we are getting ready to 
start the year and enter into our coming of our our spirithood, so to speak. And what's neat about Advent is we know it's four weeks, but obviously the dates change every year. And that's one of the flexible elements of the liturgical calendar, which is great because sometimes Advent starts, you know, in mid or late November, and sometimes it starts right in December. You just never know, but it's always going to be four weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. And each Sunday of Advent, you commemorate part of what's called the Advent wreath. And there are four colors. There's three that are, I believe it's white, and one that's pink. And then in the middle oh, of that wreath really? is the Christ in my candle. Church, I remember doing this part. In my church, though, the candles were purple, and there was the me- one pink candle, and then the, the Christ candle yes. was white. And I think that's how the Methodist church does it as well. But I know there oh. are some churches that they'll switch the colors. So mm. we've always done it where it's purple for three. One of them is pink, and then the center one, the Christ candle, is white. Um, Interesting. What's really cool is you have to light them in a certain order. What is this meant to symbolize? So I'm trying to think. So it kind of shows like a progression of time. With each candle, we look forward to the hope of the season, the faith of the season, the joy of the season, which is, I believe, the pink candle, and then love of the season. Um, And it's a way for preparation and for devotion as like a it's almost like a really fancy advent calendar. Where instead of mm. opening a box each day, it's each week we get to light a candle, signifying that we're getting closer to Christmas. Okay. Um, and what's really cool is the colors for that season are either violet or purple. And some traditions, the color is also blue. So I know the Methodist Church, we really like the color blue for Christmas. Mm. Um, mm. So all our banners mm. are blue. The altered cult, like tablecloth is blue. Um, any decorations huh. that we have are blue. Um, and also at the beginning of Advent, we do what's called hanging of the greens, where you get to decorate the sanctuary for Christmas. So, mm. oh, yeah, mm. I did it's that. All up. decorated. Every, the tree and everything is up for a whole month. And then even after Christmas, it's really cool. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Do you, I actually don't know the answer to this question. Do you wear like a, like a minister's outfit that has colors change throughout the year? Yes, you can. Um, so it's with your stole. Um, your stole is different colors. So usually uh, clergy can wear either a white or black robe. It's really their preference. Mm. Mm. Uh, but then their stoles or their albs change with the liturgical calendar. So like right now we're in ordinary time um, and the color for that is green. So although I am not fully ordained and I can't wear a stole quite yet. um, Oh, and that's a whole formality in itself. Um, But yes, the clergy can wear colors to commemorate where they're at in the liturgical year. I actually have a friend. He has a pair of chucks for each season in the liturgical year. So he has like a pair of green chucks. He has blue, I like purple, white, red, yellow. It's it's awesome. It's just so cool. Wow. And he'll wear his shoes to commemorate each season of the liturgical wow. year. How yeah. are the seasons uh separated? Like what like I I remember hearing about Advent growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but like what what is after Advent? 
Because I've never heard anything else besides Advent and Holy Week. This was my exact next question, too. Yes. So we have Advent, which is the four weeks prior to Christmas. Mm -hmm. Then we have Christmas. After Christmas, we have what's called Epiphany. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. And isn't okay. Epiphany um, the, like the marking of the Holy Spirit coming to the church in Acts? No, or is that that's different? Pentecost. Oh. Epif- oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. You're right. What? What am I thinking of? I don't know. What are you thinking of? <laughs> I don't know. What is Epiphany then? So Epiphany is, if I remember this correctly, the season, it's in between another season of ordinary time and it's leading up to before what would be our Lent. Um, but it's recognized as post-Christmas, really just a, like it's now that Jesus is born, we're living into that epiphany. Methodists in particular, mm. we mark it as leading up to Ash Wednesday. So epiphany mm. is that weird break before we have ordinary time and then oh yeah, here comes Lent and then here comes Easter. Mm. Usually mm. within epiphany there's I'm trying to think if there's any major like holidays that are celebrated off the top of my head. I don't think so. So you keep mentioning um, ordinary time. I haven't heard that phrase before. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it's literally what it sounds like. It's time where there's nothing really like significant happening within like the life of the church. It's just oh. it's just meant as a time where we fall in between our seasons. Um, so it's almost okay. like think of, think of like a sports season. So football. You know, I won't use hockey because hockey, their season is extremely long and that <laughs> yep. wouldn't apply here. Right. But I'm thinking like baseball, football, basketball, where their seasons are pretty limited. Their ordinary time would be their off season. Mm, OK. Oh, OK. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So between Epiphany and Lent is ordinary time. And following this first period of ordinary time, we have what's called Lent. Y'all know what Lent is, right? Again, I've heard of it. I did. I did. Yeah. <gasps> okay. Lent. Oh, see, I remember doing Lent sometimes. No. Nope. Oh, you do? Up. I never participated. Yeah. You, like, no. like, not in a formal sense. I just remember, like, maybe it being talked about in Sunday school or, like, sometimes as a family, we would talk about, like, what are you giving up for Lent? Are you giving up chocolate? Or are you giving up pop? Or, like, mm. but so it would be kind of casual, not sure. like mm-hmm. it wasn't really talked about. From the pulpit, I guess. So Lent represents the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness before he was crucified. Mm-hmm. And mm. so him being in the wilderness, he, you know, was fasting and he was meditating and praying. And so for us, it's not a chance just to give something up. Like I, I strongly encourage people. Yeah, go ahead and give something up for 40 days. Like if you're addicted to caffeine or, you know, I know one year I gave up chewing bubble gum. And as easy as that sounds, <laughs> it was so difficult for me to give that up. Um, <laughs> but in place of giving something up, you should also add something to your 40 days. <laughs> so, like, for example, I one year I gave up um, Instagram, but also while giving up Instagram, I added a daily journal. So rather than <laughs> recording oh. something via picture wise on social media, I was recording something for myself to appreciate, and I found that I was Mm. being more vulnerable rather than focusing on editing a picture or coming up with something catchy and flashy to say. 
I was being mm-hmm. more authentic in this time, just devoting myself to writing in a journal. So it's it's um, replacing. Is it is it always intentionally replacing something outward for like an inward focused practice? It can be. It's really up to the individual. Um, okay, but it's like a I habit always, swap. It's like let's it is, yeah. let's break a break a habit you recognize might be turning into like addictive behavior and replace it with mm-hmm. something we know is healthy. And the goal, I think, from what I would think, is to see if you can continue that even beyond Lent, like. These 40 days are meant to be a kind of probationary period where you explore giving up a habit and adding a habit. Wow. And then after the 40 days are over, let's see if you're quick to revert back or are you willing to continue and see how it's enhancing your life? That's that's really cool. So, Stephen, have you never participated in any Lent kind of thing? Nope. I've heard of I've heard of Lent. I I remember the year that Emily didn't do Instagram. It was when we were in high school. Um, yep. And I remember her talking about it a lot. That <laughs> So mm. that that's, I guess, my, my greatest experience of Lent is people talking about what they gave up for Lent. That's funny. Which, Emily, I don't, I don't think I can lay this at your feet, but I think uh, my opinion of Lent was colored by people who were like, like really trying to make a show about how holy they were by what they gave up. Mm, during mm-hmm. Lent. I definitely feel that. Yeah, I think... I, Stephen, it's yeah. funny to me that you've never participated in it somewhat because I just listened to your um, Whiskey Bench episode where you guys talked about minimalism and... Oh, yeah. Your yeah. view of it as like, maybe a better word for it is intentionalism. Right, yeah. And like trying to be really intentional with like the things that you own and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I really liked, but to me it seems like Lent is right up your alley. Oh, it's totally, yeah. it totally is now. And honestly... This year, especially being in such close contact with Emily now, this is my this is going to be my first year starting this advent where I I walk the liturgical calendar for the year because I'm so mm. I'm so intrigued by it. Like I'm finally I don't want to say finally again, but we've covered this in the past where I have been part of churches that pretty much tried to leave liturgy behind and replace it with mm-hmm. a lot of like Americanism, I don't know, the uh, Mm-hmm. there's the critique of the American church that I could go on a rant on. But so now I'm very much interested in liturgical practices, cyclical ways of bringing us back to a mind frame of, okay, let's find something to fast and mm-hmm. see how we, we can replace that. How can we quiet down leading up to good Friday and Easter? Uh, so yeah, no, I'm, I'm really Do looking here. I'm loving this because Emily is, introducing me to the calendar that I'm about to walk for the next year. Oh, yay. Do do you guys want to hear what is possibly the craziest thing I did for Lent one time? I'm ready. Uh, Yes. One year, I did uh, Peter Rollins' course called Atheism for Lent. Yeah. I've heard of this. I've heard of this. Have you ever heard of this? No. Okay. The concept, I mean, it feels a little buzzwordy as to give up God for Lent. Oh, I would try it. But. But what he means behind that is that each day he provides you with at least one or two, usually a reading, sometimes some sort of uh, short film or interview of an atheist scholar um, or atheist point of view that usually critiques Christianity historically. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so like you read a little so... bit of Nietzsche, you read, um, he has a couple modern thinkers in there, but usually they're like historical. Mm-hmm scholars um so each day he provides you with some sort of critique 
And the idea is to like not ignore the the critiques and the naysayers, but to use it as a dialectic for Christianity. Oh, oh wow. that's so cool. That is, yeah, that's really I, neat. I thought it was great. I really loved it. That's really neat. Emily, mm-hmm. I had another question about Ash Wednesday. Oh, yeah. Since we're, we're like kind of in this realm of the calendar. We're leading up to Easter I now. Really, I really loved the Ash Wednesday service I went to. I thought it was great. I thought it was meaningful. But to be honest, I don't really understand like where it comes from, even though I can kind of see how Ash Wednesday services make use of the biblical text to like remind us of our mortality. Sure. But like, where did it start? Do you know? Oh, that's a good question. I don't even think, and this, see, and that's the plus side is they don't always teach you everything in seminary. But from what I can remember <laughs> in my worship class, what I can remember, Ash Wednesday started like in the 11th century. Um, mm. ah. it, it actually is never mentioned in the Bible, but there is a verse in the book of Daniel that links fasting to ashes. And so some scholars believe that this was the origin of the practice of Ash Wednesday to commemorate the start of the Lenten season, which mm. is Lent. Mm. But it started as early as the 11th century. That's a lot later than I would have guessed. Yeah, same here. I So it, what it sounds like is it's possibly, it's like lifting a tradition or a practice from Ju- the Jewish faith or Jewish practice. Like if it's linked back to uh, possibly, right? Because yeah. we hear about like sackcloth and ashes as mm-hmm. as a common mm-hmm. way of prophets, like really hammer, trying to hammer their point across to whatever culture right. they're trying to speak to. And I know I don't know how other churches have done it, but in the Methodist Church, our practice for our ashes is we actually take the palm leaves from the previous Palm Sunday. Oh. We dry the leaves and then we burn them, and those are the ashes that we actually use on Ash Sun or Ash Wednesday. That's really neat. Hmm. It's neat because we're remembering the previous Palm Sunday when we were getting ready for for Easter knowing what Jesus is going to do. And so now in this preparation for this year, we're using those ashes to commemorate the start of Lent. Right. So is Holy Week part of Lent? Is it the last section of Lent? It is the last. It is, yes. Okay. And then Easter begins on Easter morning. And how long does Easter season last? Oh, and that depends calendar by calendar. Like Western churches have a different calendar than Eastern churches. Right. And like some really? and some Lutheran churches have a different calendar than other Protestant churches do. Interesting. Well, that's one of the downfalls of the liturgical calendar is and I don't think there should be a uniform calendar, but I think because there are so many variances in the calendar, it leads to you know, who's upholding their faith more based on which calendar you know like who's actually living out their life as a christian oh well you follow this calendar you're not in the right season compared to what i'm Uh, following uh. it can be a very kind of iffy topic to discuss with certain people especially if they are very centered on the calendar sounds like it might be divisive Hmm. i mean honestly in the same way that just denominations begin dividing themselves like so goes the church so goes its practices so if we're going to yeah. subdivide, then we're going to try and, you know, play with the definition of how long Easter is based on mm-hmm. based on the denominational foundations we build for ourselves. Hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. How did we get those calendar differences? Was it like after the denominational splits or like, do you know anything about that? I would, I, and I shouldn't assume, but that would be my guess is because sure. they saw differences in what they held to be accurate for them. Huh. And okay. so when they split, when they moved, when they merged, they created their own calendars. And some of it is just kind of hmm. falling back to, you know, the churches that they're rooted in, you know, are they rooted in you know, the Reformed Church, are they rooted in the English Church? What is it that they kind of give their start to? Wow. Um, so yeah. from a Methodist standpoint, Methodists technically are not part of the Reformed Church, which is really interesting. I just learned that recently. Mm. Um, we're oh, interesting. Actually, we're part of we're part of the the Anglican side of Christianity. Um, oh. So we are not part of the Reformed, even though So you are Protestant, are, but you're not Reformed. Yes. Um, which is funny because John Wesley said that we were the church that he sought to reform. So right. like, we weren't meant to be a denomination. We were meant to be more of a movement and it grew into a denomination. So I'm sure Wesley is probably rolling in his grave, just kind of sad. But I don't know. I can't speak for him. So with the differences wow, in liturgical calendars between some denominations, does that explain why Orthodox Christians celebrate um, a different Easter than Western Christians. Like you mentioned, like the mm -hmm. split between Western and Easter. Yeah, the schism. Yes, so does that mean, like I know Easter changes every year because it's more lunar based. Um, right. Because Passover is lunar based. Whoa, what? Sorry, um, back up. Explain this to me. I didn't even know this. Wait. Oh, really? Really. Okay, you know how Take like- Take it away, Josh. You know how like the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar? Did you know about that? I should have. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we, in the Gregorian, in ordinary time, yeah. well, Ooh. we have a solar calendar, mm -hmm. um, but oh. a lot of a lot of other older calendars, like the Chinese and uh, the Jewish calendars, were lunar-based. Mm. Okay, yeah, that tracks. So that's why every year, um, Jewish holidays and some Chinese holidays fall like at different periods during our current calendar. Mm -hmm. I see. Like Chinese New Year will kind of move around a little bit. Passover yep. will move around a little bit. And that's why Easter moves around a little bit because that yep. one's based off of Passover. Whoa. Yes. And so, Whoa. and also that tracks with in preparation for Easter, like Lent, we know it's always going to be 40 days, but again, that can vary depending on when Easter falls. Right. Yeah. It's like you find Easter and then you count back 40 days to start Lent. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Okay. I'm learning so much so, today. Here's a question, Emily. With that kind of moving around a little bit between some calendars, do the Orthodox Christians celebrate Christmas at a different time too? Or does their, um, what am I trying to ask? Does their uh, time period between Christmas, Epiphany, and Easter fluctuate as well? Or does it like stay the same and that's why their Easter is always different? I believe it's the latter of the, to my knowledge. Um, and this, gotcha. is, this is also where my knowledge kind of falters a bit because I am so well doctrinated in the Methodist church. Um, mm. It would be so neat if for any of you listening who do not fit in the Methodist family or any of any of those, like if you're part of the Orthodox church, comment and, and educate us on this because this is one of the downfalls of a liturgical calendar is we are only exposed to what we know. And if we don't study other mm. calendars, if we don't study what other churches and denominations practice, we don't, I don't think, fully understand 
what it is liturgically that we are wanting to celebrate and how we are wanting to celebrate it. Wow. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So comment on it. So what happens the rest of the year after Easter? After Easter, we enter into what is, come on, it's, you already mentioned it, Josh. Pentecost. Pentecost. I remember that one. Yes, the birth of the church. Um, And that lasts for, I believe it's a a week or two. And then from there, uh, we have this huge period of time that's ordinary time before the start of Advent. So if you look, if you look at a, at like a, a pie chart, right, and you map the liturgical calendar, Advent would be probably, mm, I would say, like a 10% sliver. Then you have Hmm. Christmas and Epiphany, and that would be about 5%. Then you have the first gap of ordinary time, probably mm, 15 or 20%. Then you have Lent, which is probably 25 or 20%. Easter, which is about the same. Pentecost is the tiniest sliver. And then probably 45% of the pie chart is ordinary time. So how does the liturgical calendar inform what you do in church? Like I'm a little bit familiar with there's like certain readings for different times of year that like stay pretty constant, mm-hmm. but then some things change this too, is, right? Yeah, this is yes. what I want to know, especially the the foundation of like a lectionary that establishes your gospel reading th- mm. for the year. So there are councils that uh, create lectionaries, and what they try to do is they try to intervene and look at what are what are books of the Bible that you know would help in this season and in this period, and especially for huh. the Gospels, it's it can be interesting because you don't always want to read from the same one. So there's a series called Feasting on the Word, and it actually lays out the lectionary, depending on what year you're in. So this is where it gets a little tricky. So Mm. there's years that have letters behind them, and it's a curriculum of lectionaries that we use, at least in the Methodist church that we use it. And what's helpful is, depending on what year you're in, you know, oh, we're going to be reading, you know, for Christmas season, we're going to be reading from the book of Matthew, or we're going to be reading from the book of John. Huh. Um, it's not always the same. Sometimes it changes. So I think like this year we're in year Whoa. A. And so all our lectionary comes from the book of Matthew. So For all our huh. like New Testament suggested scripture. So the lectionary, again, is one of those things where it's established by the denominational councils, it sounds like. It sounds like your the Methodist church has its own way, but maybe the Catholic church practices something slightly different or orthodox is, oh, wow. Okay. So I know like the Methodist church, as well as other Protestant churches use what's called the revised common lectionary. And that was kind of universally established among Protestant churches in 1994. And so there's the four years. So they'll integrate every four years using these different books of the Bibles for these different seasons. yeah, it's so it's one of those things that if you if you really want to learn more about it, you have to like take a class on it. You have to Jeez. like go do research on it because it's Jeez. just so fascinating. And it's not something that we just teach everyone in our church. You know, we don't like we don't mm. start the service saying, and now our reading from the lectionary year A 
They don't, <laughs> they don't, we don't do that. <laughs> we just go straight into what the reading is. And that, that is honestly a little disappointing to me. Like I was hoping there was going to be a lot easier answer to this one because I know I love the idea of the lectionary because it, to me, it's so, it's a beautiful way of establishing and knowing that Methodist churches across the world will be reading from the exact same gospel that mm. Sunday morning, right? And you have unless they want to do a topical sermon. Now, okay, so is that just left up oh. to the pastor? Like that you can just choose yes. to do that? Oh yeah. What? So like what I do? What? I would yeah. I would oh. think you would say I thought this was only like the Baptist that could do this. Are you no. serious? I my <laughs> guess would have been you save your topical sermons that you as Emily get laid on your heart. You save those for ordinary time. And no way. Nope. Crazy. <laughs> so here, I'll give you an example. So the seasons that I really stick to the lectionary are Advent, Lent, Easter. Those are really like the seasons that you really should use the lectionary. And it's not because it's just so easy to use the scripture. Because sometimes you read the scripture and you think back and you say to yourself, oh, this is actually challenging because you don't want to repeat the same sermon every year. You have to be creative with the scripture. And right. so sometimes you are you can be limited with lectionary, but you can also be given a chance to say, I'm going to be creative in what the scripture is telling me wow. and do something that I've never done before. So those are the seasons that I will for sure stick to the lectionary. Anything else, though, like Epiphany... Even Pentecost, like, yes, there's a lectionary, but I will try to do more than one topical sermons each month. Mm. Oh, mm. And that's kind of cool. And I do, you still do have that, that like, creativity. Yes. And I do that, especially because with pastors who, if they really want to do a disservice to their congregation, they don't pay attention to the world around them. And oh, I think a say, pastor. Say that again. That was who, wisdom right there. A pastor who does a disservice to their congregation, they don't pay attention to the world around them. <laughs> and so if you are not willing mm. to hear the spirit move in what is happening around you, how do you actually mm. give a good sermon? So like today in church, you know, normally they celebrate our Veterans Day service type thing the Sunday before. Um, but since we had a guest speaker, I said, you know, I'm I'm going to actually do it this Sunday. Mm. Um, and I looked at what the reading was and I, I just, I didn't like how it was fitting in and I knew what mm. message needed to be shared. And so I did my own research and found the scripture that I wanted to use. And that was a topical sermon. It had nothing to do with the lectionary whatsoever. And so now knowing that Advent huh. is two weeks away, I'm going to try and get as many topical sermons, you know, before the 29th wow. done. Wow. So then I'm ready for Advent. Honestly, that really surprises me because in my mind, the idea behind having like a liturgical calendar and a lectionary was to like prevent stuff like yeah. that so that people couldn't just like be off on their own and like do their own thing. You like were restricted to doing what like the council or the denomination is telling yeah. you to read about. Yep. And I think that to me, there's two faults to the liturgical calendar. And that is one of them is oh, where okay. it can be so restrictive that pastors, and I think even just members of the church, can feel limited on what they can interpret and read mm. during a season. Mm. 
Mm. And Mm. I don't think it should be just limited. Um, You know, even if we do focus on this particular gospel's version of the Christmas story, it doesn't mean we can't compare to another gospel's because there are differences in the gospel's. But the other fault to the liturgical calendar is because it is based on a year, many people have felt that the seasons between Christmas and Easter are just so insignificant that we try mm. to content we try to condense the life of Jesus within that that time span. And so mm. oh. we have the birth narrative. We're oh. so excited. Now we have these short few months before we get ready to hang Jesus on the cross. Like wow. people think of yeah. it too, yeah, yeah, yeah. almost too literally. And so some people have thought, what if we had where we celebrated Christmas, you know, 2020, what if we waited to celebrate Easter in like 2023? Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. To give you the three year ministry. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Has someone like seriously like, proposed that not to my knowledge i know that would be incredible that'd be super interesting wouldn't that be just something to really think about though yeah what if it was like because you were kind of describing what it seems like is a four-year cycle right for yeah it sounds like that was pretty much based off of the fact that there's four gospels right Mm -hmm. that would be super interesting to me if instead there was like a 33-year cycle oh jeez could you imagine? Uh, that'd be crazy. The... If you only celebrated Easter like a couple times in your life. Whoa. Yeah. Same with Christmas. What do you know about like where we got the dates for the liturgical calendar? Because I know a little bit about where they came from, but I don't think I know as much as you do. Well, why don't you share what you know? That way. Like, I know that there were some uh, previous holidays and festivals that fell around those certain times. And from my understanding... Um, the Roman Catholic Empire, when they were taking over some communities, like installed those as Christian days, mostly for empiric reasons. So they like moved around where we celebrated Christian holidays to coincide with the local holidays. I mean, because a lot of cultures have some sort of winter festival, mm-hmm. right? And usually, a springtime festival. You get, like some yeah. some um, degree of appropriation. Through the years. Yeah. But from what I've heard, it was mostly tied to like the Roman Empire. Yeah. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. And wanting to essentially negate the pagan holidays, which cracks me up because, and I don't know, we might get into this when we do a, you know, a special Christmas episode or whatever, that most of our practices, like even in Easter and Christmas and other holidays, uh, is still rooted in pagan practices. Oh, like which ones? So I think like one that, and I could possibly be wrong, but I know like a Christmas tree, like the origin of a Christmas tree, way back in the day, like the pagans had holidays and and celebrations around a tree. And I just think it is kind of funny that we also do the same thing, but we try to commercialize it. We try to say it's Christian and we do make it different, obviously, like there are distinct differences, but we were trying it's almost like when uh, the roman empire and other other empires were you know pillaging and and conquering places they would destroy temples they would destroy landmarks and put something there but that would just commemorate oh well we know that this is where this took place because they built something on top of it mm. and that's sort of what christmas and like other holidays sort of do is we're trying to stamp out these non-monotheistic religions, these these other 
things, these other deities, and we are commemorating them to Christian ideas and ideals. Hmm. So commercialization and uh, capitalism aside, I've heard (laughs) some people comment on, oh, I guess I'll say first, I've heard some people try to attack Christianity for saying your holidays and all the things that you're trying to celebrate with are actually pagan and therefore that like invalidates them. And I think that that's a break in logic, but but I do think that there's a lot of Christians out there who don't know and are uninformed that I would agree some of these things did have pagan roots. Absolutely. So I guess my question is what's your opinion on yeah, even if like the origins of these things were pretty empiric and really kind of reek of manifest destiny in a mm-hmm. sense. Like what's your opinion of Christians still acknowledging like the roots of these things and still like appropriating them and being able to say like we can still like acknowledge where these came from historically and still use them to honor Christ and honor our tradition. Do you think that that's still okay to do? Yes, as long as you are acknowledging the origins. It's almost like with I just think in general with cultural appropriation if you try to make it as if it's your own and really it's not, you have to acknowledge where it came from before utilizing it. And so like one example, and this goes back a little bit, but when I had talked about All Saints Day, you know, in church I had said, you know, he we have our altar with our candles, mm. and I had mentioned an ofrenda, but I wasn't making it my cultural experience because I don't fit that cultural experience. But I was rooting mm. back to like, this is what the Latinx culture does in celebration of their loved ones, of their saints. Like we can have mm. we can have one for ourselves without distorting culturally the symbolism of theirs Mm. versus ours Mm -hmm. and so i think the same Mm. applies in in the holidays and in the seasons is acknowledging the roots acknowledging where they came from the cultural significance behind it and saying this is ours we've melded it we've molded it into something that's ours but we can acknowledge the roots of that and say that this is this is okay that this is what it is now for us yeah, I like I like that attitude. I think so. My wife and I are absolutely obsessed with Celtic culture, mm-hmm. and I've been uh, like my book list now is just full of books about the history of like Celtic Christianity. Mm. Uh, th- one of the things that frustrates us to no end because we're we're also reading books like of authors putting together these anthologies of like myths and legends of the Celtic Isles from for thousands of years, right? And the thing that annoys us the most is the fact that when Christianity was imported by the Romans into Celtic areas, because the the pagan practices and like druidic practices of the Celts were not written down anywhere, they were just wholesale replaced and now the world has mm-hmm. effectively huh. lost the the gift that the Celts had to offer and it did in a way, kind of marry Christianity in a way so that we can now say and point to Celtic Christianity as a specific stream of spirituality mm-hmm. and all that. But there's a lot of things that just disappeared once, once our, you know, once the Roman Christian project was like uploaded into their, into their operating system. And, and now it's just, it was just like wiped mm-hmm. from the disc. And that's, that's like really annoying. So, we should stop trying to replace and maybe collaborate mm-hmm. and, and work to 
I mean, this this goes back to previous conversations we've had. It's so, come on, can we can we work together in this interfaith thing and see where the common ground is and see like what a more beautiful way to move forward together is instead of just continually either trying to replace or let's just make our own versions. Sure. Sorry, that was that was a rant, but you guys got me thinking about that. Yeah, I like that. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I also find kind of frustrating with the liturgical calendar is that it's not always historically based. So like mm. a big one is Christmas. Chris, like Jesus wasn't born in December. Yeah, and this is kind of what Josh was getting at. Like why are the dates the way they yeah. are if we know? And that's one of the things that maybe switching up the liturgical calendar that would be one of the things to explore is like celebrating Christmas, hmm. maybe in March. You mentioned the, uh, you said it was called the revised common. Lectionary. Uh, mm-hmm. What's it called? Lectionary. Yeah. Um, you said that wasn't finalized until 94? 1994. Yes, yeah. if I. Or like that's the most recent version. That's like the, so they, they come up with one each year. It was in 1994 oh. where for liturgical calendar purposes, like they all universally came to like this conclusion of. Choosing colors, choosing, you know, things like that. Oh, interesting. So there has been sort of like a synthesis backwards. There has, yes. Interesting. If a member of uh, laity like me wants to engage in the lectionary, like in a home practice, is it the kind of thing where it's like Mm -hmm. you, you have to go buy yourself a 2021 planner? Is it like I have to go buy the 2021 lectionary? Oh, you can download it. Like, but like, this is just me being biased. But it's not like I can go and just download it once and for all and know it's going to be the the same even next year or two years from now. Right. Because it changes each year. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So like for me, since I'm introducing you to this, Stephen, um, the easiest thing I would suggest is, and I'm even more than happy to share it with you, is using the Methodists. Um, website they you know they have it as a pdf where you can easily access the revised common lectionary for for each year and so like they've posted for 2021 they had it posted in i believe it was october Mm. so they're they already kind of know what's what this new year is going to look like and entering advent and everything so what's neat though is since advent is the start of the new season regardless of you know 2021 approaching we finish with Advent and Christmas and going into Epiphany, and then we go on to the new lectionary, even though we're still in the same liturgical year. So you, you're you kind of using the lectionary for two years, almost, the same lectionary for two Interesting. years. Interesting. Because of where it wow. falls in the calendar. Okay. Yeah, the way, it, the way that maps on top of mm-hmm. the Gregorian calendar that we use. Oh, here's another question I thought of, because this is kind of along the same lines. Um, do Methodists do like a daily office of prayer? I know Episcopalians do, but to be honest, that's still pretty new to me. And I haven't done it like a consistently over time. Um, so we have, we do have, and I'm trying to think, what's the name of it? Oh, the upper room Um, is a hmm. devotional and like in a series of, of prayers and readings that uh, people and it's by donation. So you, you know, you just pick up a book in your church and you just, you leave a donation if you want. Um, but it, it guides mm. you through the whole year, like whenever you start to whenever you finish, um, for prayers, for, for scripture. And it doesn't always fit into the lectionary, but it can. So it can be something huh. a little variant, but it is 
a way for you, in a sense, to liturgically have a cycle of reading and devotional and prayer. That's kind of cool. That is really Mm -hmm. cool. To be honest, it's stuff like that that I feel like I kind of missed out on growing up in a church, in churches that were so, uh, I don't, like the first phrase that comes to mind is void of liturgy. But Mm. I know that that's not true because like every church has liturgy. It just means like order of service, right? So like every church has some form of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not like, uh, is institutionalized the right word? What am I trying to say? Like orderly, maybe orderly Mm, mm -hmm. and like cyclical. Yeah. I feel like I really missed out on that. Like I think for a while I felt like I kind of wish someone would just give me prayers to pray. Like when I don't know what to pray. Yeah. And the concept of like liturgy and order to a service that is semi-universal mm-hmm. in some regards, to me, that just totally appeals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. The daily office, the the prayer, like a prayer book along with the reading mm-hmm. for the day. I think, too, I find, especially after being taught how to practice like a, a Lectio version or a Lectio practice of, mm. of reading scripture, like just being able to be guided to the scripture and given a prayer for the day and not necessarily, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this celebrity pastor has written a devotional to read along with it. And you end up reading more of the, the guy's words than the scripture itself or the prayer itself. Mm-hmm. You know, just a simple, a simple gift like that. I think uh, I'm just going to echo Josh. Like that is definitely something I feel like I've missed out on. I think the other thing. Uh, as far as having a prayer book goes, is I don't feel like I was ever instructed on how to treat the book of Psalms as Jesus's own mm-hmm. prayer book. Like this was the prayer book he had mm-hmm. that he worked mm-hmm. through and prayed through. And and even when he quotes it, right, um, like Psalm 22, while he's mm-hmm. hanging on the cross, like the the reason he had those words on his lips is because he had been praying those for his mm-hmm. his his time on earth. And he knew... He knew the words of David. He knew what it feels like to be completely forsaken and abandoned by God. So it was, yeah. it was there on his lips to say, but mm-hmm. I mean, my, my attitude toward Psalms that I feel like I was given was this was their, this was their version of like writing the next big Hillsong worship song. Right. It was more like, yeah, yeah it was more like the worship playlist than it was like a very contemplative prayer book Mm -hmm. Hmm. that's what i love about the lectionary too is yes you are given scripture but i have found myself lately especially when preparing a sermon i try not to always use the new testament reading like i will incorporate it but when i'm reading a scripture to the congregation before i start my sermon i usually try to read a scripture from the Hebrew Bible or a Psalm. And then if I really feel Mm. like I need to actually read the Mm. New Testament reading, Mm. then I will. But I really try to educate my congregation on, yes, like we are New Testament people, but we can't come Mm. to that until we acknowledge where we came from, which is Mm. the Hebrew Bible, like the Old Testament. Mm. And, and I really like today's sermon, I, I use Amos and that was, I didn't even use anything from the New Testament. Mm. And I loved it because it's a realm that I personally want to explore more. It's part of the Bible that is just so fascinating mm-hmm. and yeah. really helps me focus on becoming a New Testament person. 
So here's a question, and this might be a two-parter, but I think I'm not alone in the sense that I feel like I'm entering a new season of life, whether that's like coming into adulthood or like the the current situation of our pandemical times mm-hmm. or I'm mm-hmm. um, like maybe people are just like experiencing other changes in life that just like happen to be coinciding. And I think there's a lot of people that that's happening for in a lot of different ways, whether it's employment yeah. or um, it's the a pandemic or relationships, mm-hmm. stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people right now are more likely to experience some sort of seasonal shift huh. oh, like definitely. that right now. So in what ways does the liturgical calendar inform that concept of like new eras in our own life and maybe like cyclical seasons in our own life. Mm. And I'm also curious if you feel like the liturgical calendar gives us more grounding, either grounding in the past or like grounding in the midst of uncertainty. Ooh, I think what the liturgical calendar can and should do is even in the midst of change and uncertainty, we do have a sense of a constant. We do have mm. a sense of knowing, you know, not just focusing on Christmas, the holiday, but focusing on what the season of Christmas brings. And I think, and especially like I was telling my church today with the news of having to close our doors, like if we don't get to have a Christmas Eve service in person, that doesn't mean that we can't still celebrate the Christmas season. Like we can still be a part of the season of hope and joy and love and peace, regardless of what is happening in our lives. And that is a constant, regardless of what we're doing. Emily, will you speak to some of the other, because I'm, I'm aware of a couple other holidays that I don't know if they're considered part of the liturgical calendar, but All Saints Day being one of them. The first time I visited a Methodist church happened to be on World Eucharist Sunday. Oh, yeah, you went to Laurel, right? I did, yeah, with Pastor Dolly. And, I mean, that was a special day for me. That was the day that I was like, ah, Eucharist is so much more than I was raised to think it is. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, what what are some other days that just kind of fall on the calendar that are recognized. Oh, let's see. I'm going to pull up maybe your top 5 favorite or whatever. I don't know if even if there's yeah. 5, but So we have you know, like Palm Sunday, like outside of Holy Week and all that. I think ooh, one day that I really like is um and it falls in Epiphany season is the baptism of Jesus. Oh. Um and that happens. It's usually the Sunday before we enter into that first period of ordinary time before we enter into Mm. Lent. Mm. And so that kind of commemorates the start of Jesus's ministry, which is where I think, again, it would be really cool if we actually completely changed the liturgical calendar and we would celebrate this moment, this day, once every three years, you know? Yeah. I like the three-year concept. I think Easter every 33 years would be challenging. Um, But at the same time, it's like, how many people treat the the passing of Halley's Comet as almost like a religious experience ever every however many decades it takes for that comet to pass? Right. Like, maybe it would be special where you only celebrate Easter a couple times in your life or, you know, mm-hmm. separated out by three years. I, I know I took your three year concept and just immediately went back to the 33 year concept, but 
at the same time, I think that's really neat because it it's almost reflecting the the year of jubilee that's spelled out in the in the mm-hmm. Torah and which to my knowledge historians have never found evidence that that year was ever celebrated but the intent of it was the year of jubilee is only celebrated once in a person's lifetime so it's like it's a yeah. big deal for a whole generation to reset with that year you know i kind of like that idea for easter i think another day that i really like too is also the transfiguration day where jesus took a few of the disciples and they you know he was transfigured in front of them that's a that's a big thing in the Mm. methodist church too what do methodists think about feast days oh hi we're methodists like is that part of is that part of the liturgical calendar (laughs) Uh, yeah it is even if it's not a feast day we make it a feast day (laughs) methodists we have a joke that um if we don't have a potluck you're not actually indoctrinated into the methodist church because it's so heavily eaten yeah Uh, no but like so that's funny so feast days actually that was one of the whole other than holidays was one of the reasons why the liturgical calendar was created was to commemorate those days um, so we definitely, we, we acknowledge them and some of our lectionary will come from readings that acknowledge those, those days. Wow. Are most of the feast days like associated with specific saints? Some are, and some are just geared towards seasons of harvest, seasons of, uh, preparation. So like Pentecost, hmm. if you read the story of Pentecost, they were gathering for the feast of when they were preparing for their harvest, they had reaped and sowed mm-hmm. for, for 50 days. And so mm. they, they were in celebration of preparing that harvest before the Holy Spirit entered. Um, so that's Whoa. kind of a neat little story. Okay, But yeah, we love our feast days because it means we get to eat. <laughs> so do you, do you literally do it like that? Like that's what you guys do for a feast day? Like you just like have a potluck? Because oh. I remember growing up with potlucks, but it wasn't because of a feast day. It was usually because like, I don't know. Sometimes, or like the church wanted to go play football in the park. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, sometimes like we'll do like a Seder meal or we'll do, Mm. um, we'll do, I'm trying to think of like an agape feast and things like that where we do try to commemorate. You don't know what an agape, Stephen, do you know what an agape feast is? I'm familiar with the Greek word agape, but that's it. Oh my gosh. Okay, let me. Okay, so Stephen, why don't you share your knowledge of the Greek word agape? Well, so um this is a this this is a CS Lewis thing I got, but uh in his book The Four Loves, he's yeah, the he spells loves. out the yeah. di- the different words in Greek that the one English word love represents. And so agape, I I don't I couldn't go through the other three, but agape is like is the self-sacrificial I can the self-sacrificial, like pouring yourself out in order to fill another up kind of mm-hmm. love. It's a, it's the selfless one. Whereas there's like erotic love, there's platonic love, and I forget the other one. But yeah, that's that's all I know. I, I have no idea what agape feast means, though. Um, Emily, what's the other one that yeah. he's forgetting? So you have so you have eros, which is an, an erotic love. Yep. Then you have storge, which is like just love of comfort or love of things. Oh, okay. Um, so when you hmm. say I love Chinese food, oh. that would be considered a storge love. Interesting. Um, then you have philia, which can be friend or family. That's the platonic um, comrade, yeah. peer. Yeah, like Philadelphia, brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. Yes, okay. that's exactly. And then you have agape. Um, and actually, the word agape is great when depending on how you're using it. So 
When you want to say like I love you, it would be like agapao, which completely changes oh. like the word. Wow. Um but regardless, so agape, like an agape feast or a love feast is a time where Eucharist is incorporated into this meal and it's huh. it's distinct from the Lord's Supper because of that. It's seeking to strengthen relationships and create the spirit of harmony um and like goodwill mm, wow. and to forgive people of their past transgressions disputes whatever you want to call it and to move forward in loving one another mm. so you can have a love feast really at any time of the year multiple times of the year so even if you want how would to. you do this how does this look in a church context like you would have a potluck and at the beginning you would like celebrate communion or something yep and you can there's prayers i know within methodist church we have some prayers that we can use we have some call oh. to worship type liturgy um, and then, yeah, you just you share in Eucharist and then you share in a meal. Mm. Wow. And it can be as simple or extravagant as you want it to wow. be. Wow. It's almost making official this 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 need to gather over a table or a drink <laughs> to set aside our differences. Because like it sounds like the secular version could is almost like I, I've been feeling weird about something I said to you like a week ago. Can we meet for coffee and kind of air this out? Yes. Iron Iron out our differences. Yep. And I think it's done so intentionally as a communal element. And it's not, I don't even think you have to focus on, hey, like you and I, let's get together and share in this meal. It can be like church universal where we say, hey, we have done some things that we are not proud of. Wow. We have said some things against our neighbor. We are coming together mm. collectively to share in this meal and to forgive one another. That's really neat. I like that there's so much formality behind uh, like incorporating communion as a part of a feast mm -hmm. in the Methodist church because like I don't know about you Stephen but there's been like small groups that I've been a part of that honestly it felt more like communion cooking and eating together like an actual dinner than sometimes communion has felt in church like sometimes it's mm -hmm. felt more to me like this is holy communion right. when we're eating yeah. together and that's then yeah I felt like just eating bread and juice yeah. in church yep. that's what I love about having communion at like church camp when we have it, we mm. usually have already eaten dinner and we're getting ready to do our prayer stations for the evening. Um, but because we've already eaten dinner, we're now entering into this phase of having Eucharist. And it is so much more mm. meaningful because I hear all the kids sitting together and they're laughing. And, you know, if one of them had a bad day, there's others around them checking in on them, seeing how they're doing and there's a lot going on in that space, and then they can come together and share in the breaking of bread. Well, and it's a it's a um, transition. And sometimes point. we are creative with yeah. it. Yeah, it's great. It's a transition. I mean, even in the upper room, like Jesus didn't institute the exactly. Lord's Supper until after the meal was over, and he took the leftover bread and broke it and shared the rest of yeah. the cup. Yeah, like it's it was meant to be that way. And I love getting creative with it too. Like understanding that anything mm. could represent Eucharist to you. Like one. There was one summer where I uh, I was asked to preach for my old church's uh, youth camp, and on the last night we did communion, and we had forgotten the bread and like red juice, so we used yellow lemonade and tortilla chips, and it's like, hey, it uh, it can it can be literally anything, and I guarantee I'm gonna remember yes. using lemonade and tortilla chips for the rest of my life because it was unique and because it was special. Well, you know. Us Methodists are proud because Welch's grape juice actually started because two Methodist brothers <laughs> wanted to what? recognize 
the struggles of alcoholism in the church, and so they no wanted to have an alternative during way. the Eucharist. No way. Whoa. You're welcome. That's wild. Yeah. The more you know. I like your point, though, Stephen, because I remember my dad actually mentioning one time that his most memorable, or one of his most memorable communion experiences was, I believe, on a walk to Emmaus retreat. I don't know if you guys ever oh, heard about those. Oh, yes. That's a Methodist um, favorite. <laughs> is it? Oh, yes. Oh, that that's and, interesting. That and Chrysalis, yeah. Wait, are those Methodist things? I know Chrysalis is. Yeah. Yep. What? Okay, anyway, I think it was on one of these retreats where they took communion um, with apple juice and yep. pancakes. Oh. Yep. And I just remember like when he told me about that, I just felt like my mind was blown because- I felt like communion was only able to be had with like bread and mm -hmm. grape juice of some sort. Yeah. Which I think some Christians still do think that like aren't Catholics pretty stringent about that? Like only the priest can only consecrate yes. certain Correct. types of things. Yep. That is still still true. Yep. Which I'm still okay with. Hmm. You know, as the liturgy is built around this this heir to, exactly. to the Eucharist. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really, I mean, even... Uh, was it last episode or the episode before where I'm kind of like, I'm kind of into the idea of transubstantiation for Eucharist. Yeah. yeah. So like I'm okay with any of it because so transubstantiation to me represents the fact that we, when we nourish ourselves with any food, we are inviting the, the body and the, the blood of Christ into us because Christ is the, the sustainer of all of it anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very good. Okay, Emily, for those of us who are less liturgically centered, like Stephen and I, mm -hmm. what would you direct us towards if we wanted to like incorporate it more into our personal lives? Like, cause like I, for instance, am not going to church Sunday by mm -hmm. Sunday, mm -hmm. like you are. So like what, what is available out there? Um, well, this is kind of a cop-out answer, but your Bible is actually the best resource <laughs> because nice. although you may not be following the lectionary, you can kind of build a sense of, okay, I know Christmas is coming up, so maybe I should start reading, you know, the, the story of Mary and the angel coming to Mary and then maybe the next Sunday reading the story of how the angel spoke to, to Joseph yeah. and just and just kind of going week by week in that sense. Um, once you have a sense, season by season, what you're reading and, and what you're taking on, then you can build on from there and you can feel more comfortable adding different readings in ordinary time, in Epiphany, in Pentecost, whatever it is. But start with a major time mm. of the year. So like Advent is a great time to start since it is the start of the liturgical year. Yeah. You can start by picking, okay, I know one of the gospels doesn't have the birth narrative, so don't go to that, like, don't read that gospel. Go to one of the gospels that has a birth narrative and start from <laughs> mm -hmm. there. Because the, it, it won't do you any good. Don't read that gospel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it won't do you any good. <laughs> um, it's useless now. <laughs> there's nothing that can come from Mark. What good can come from Mark? Oh, wow. No, just kidding. Um Wow. <laughs> But I'm just joking. No, but in all seriousness, though, just pick a pick a season um, and and focus on you. You should know sort of the readings that come to mind. So if you're to start in Easter, go back to when he's in the garden, go back to when he's you know meeting with Pontius Pilate, things like that, and just slowly start to build up your reading repertoire with mm. that. And once you're comfortable with those readings, 
then I just encourage you to Google. Like, that's a huge resource. Just Google liturgical year. And once you have Mm -hmm. a sense of what that year encompasses, whatever denomination you're a part of, or if you're not part of a denomination and you just kind of want to explore, it should be pretty available online to have some type of lectionary. Um, I know, like I said, the Methodist Church makes theirs readily available um, online, and it's a downloadable PDF, and you can go along from there. It includes a Hebrew Bible reading, and it includes a psalm, and it includes an epistle reading, mm. and it includes a New Testament mm. reading. So there's some variants Sweet. there for you. Okay. That, yeah. There it is. That's the resource right there. I'm into it. Yeah, it's great. And it also tells you when you look at the Methodist lectionary, there's little bubbles next to each Sunday and each day, and it tells you what the liturgical calendar color is for that day. Mm. So you'll get a sense of, oh, why is there a green little bubble? Well, that's because we're in ordinary time. So that means the church will decorate everything in green to commemorate ordinary Interesting. time. Uh, mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, if we are ready to land this plane, I will say a big thank you to Louis Zong for the use of his song In Full Color off his album here. You can get his stuff on Bandcamp and Spotify. He's putting out new music lately, and that also just absolutely slaps. So just go go listen to it. It's It's great. Uh, also, if you want some more stuff that, as some of the kids call, absolutely slaps, uh, you can follow <laughs> us on Instagram and Twitter at RavelPod. Um, we do post discussion questions each week. So if you are on social media these days, if you're not giving it up for Lent eternally, um, follow <laughs> us there. We love talking to people and uh, we engage in all the discussions that happen. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty cool to see. Also, I'm really curious to see if we see any Orthodox Christians uh, comment and educate us on what their liturgical calendar looks like yes absolutely um emily do you have a like liturgical like benediction reading for the day does is it does it work like that um in some cases i actually just have like a generic one for today oh i'm so excited to hear it okay let me hear As we enter in the season of coming and preparation, may you go forward knowing that this is a season of a newness, of fresh air, and of a time of celebration. 